bells and jingle your halls. It's the final episode of the year as we come into this festive season and end of the year of your lord, his lord, maybe her lord, Anno 2015. Domini, let's say Anno 2015. Domini, indeed. Yep, and uh, we are struggling to get into the Christmas spirit. Um, I mean, we're trying our best. I mean, I suppose there are some big releases out this month, so... so um, Without further ado... Merry Christmas, and let's just get right into it, because obviously there is a big release that's been out, and uh, people have been excited to see where the story is going for years, mm. and to just see, how, like, are they going to pull it off? And finally, we have seen well, the Hunger like, Games, uh, Mockingjay <laughs> Part 2... Electric Avenue, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Uh, you finally saw Mockingjay Too many memes, two. too many memes. I, I quite... I, okay, Hunger Games is a weird franchise for me. I really like the books. I love Jennifer Lawrence. I've always wanted to love the movies more than I have. None of them are bad, per se, but I feel like... I felt that 3 was the strongest one, strangely, even though it's it's half a story, and it's, yeah. it's made of people in bunkers, but it weirdly felt the most self-contained. The first two ended on very knowing cliffhangers so i was sort of excited for this one knowing that it was the only one in the franchise with an actual ending and it was fine it's probably the weakest of the four the cast are largely wasted julianne moore is great but she's not in it much i loved her uh, crazy uh, 80s disco villainess costume near the end it had a cape and like large yes. boots. It was really uh, great. I mean, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, passed away while they were filming it. Mm-hmm. And I think there, there was clearly, having read the books, we know there's yeah. a scene where he's supposed to show up and say something. What they haven't said is they have <laughs> Haymitch reading a letter. No. Now, for me, before uh, you say anything, yeah. no, I didn't think it was funny. I thought it was really sweet. It felt like a oh, touching no. tribute to Hoffman because you can imagine him saying it. However, Woody Harrelson was like reading it. Oh, you no, know, no, no. I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm glad they did that rather than and just CGI him in and somehow, I don't know, edited together dialogue from previous words he said. That would have been horrendous. I just felt like it was a really funny, very practical way of getting around the situation by just having Woody Harrelson come in and say, here's a letter from the main character who, you know, died off screen in real life. So please enjoy this rousing speech and sort of epilogue to the movie. It doesn't feel forced though either because they say his character is busy doing stuff. So he wanted me to bring you this. So that happens at some point. But even Um, with that said, the the moments when they just have him in the background and it's so clearly CGI. um, I mean, it's not too distracting. People are saying that this is the weakest of the Mm -hmm. four. I don't find that. I think it's... Like, I I think the the first movie is the weakest of all of them because it's really blandly shot and Jennifer Lawrence so is quite wooden recently. in the first one. Special effects are dodgy. Yeah, it gets better in the second one, which is a very close adaptation of the book. Like it's almost beat for beat. Um, the second movie. Then these last two, what they've done is uh, split it up into uh, two movies, and I kind of hated that they did that. It just felt like. It just felt like there was this whole thing going on with um, just trying to get as much money as they can out of oh, yeah, it. And probably. I kind of, well, I, I know from reading the books, they there there is a nice middle point in Mockingjay to split it up. But I think maybe is it partly people just kind of got tired of it because the first movie was like four years ago. So to finally, does it feel just a bit anticlimactic? It's just like, oh yeah, Hunger Games, that's still out. Okay, well, I guess we better see that. Well, it made a ton of money, so I don't think it's anticlimactic. Like, the fan base, the rabid teenage fan base is still very much there. I agree that the middle point in Mockingjay does work as a split, but I feel like the first movie was too long, Mockingjay Part 1. 
that was too long, but it didn't feel as excruciatingly overlong as this one did. This one, I got really frustrated. The second half was great. The first half was just people wandering around this grey, grey Berlin monologuing and being sad. And there was no action for a war movie. There was a distinct lack of war scenes. Even though all the really dramatic stuff happens towards the end of Fucking yeah. J, which I was I was looking forward to seeing all of and that. And that was all pretty good. Like As soon as it became Resident Evil onwards, I enjoyed it. When they're in the tunnels just <laughs> shotgunning these weird white monsters, then it was great. Onwards. You have too much love for Resident Evil. I just love a high-budget I mean, schlock. those monsters... Okay, no, the monsters were well done. Do you think it's a bit aesthetically jarring? Like, that they didn't have anything quite like that in the movie so far. They had, like, the mutts, the giant dogs mm-hmm. in the first movie and stuff, but they didn't have anything that was, like, full-on Resident Evil. So I kind of felt like, they're in another movie now. They're in, like, a sort of Vincent Diesel horror movie. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. This isn't, the Hunger were, uh, this isn't the franchise we've been watching. I think that problem got compounded as it went in, because I sort of forgot the book a bit. So there was bits in that movie that I was like, that didn't happen in the book. Like I, like, I didn't recall the big tar thing happening and like that was visually I pretty great. Did, I think it yeah. did happen, yeah. But the bit that really compounded the this is a different movie was not even the Resident Evil bit, it was the cat lady bit. When they just go into a house, there's this weird... A living cat person who has like whiskers and she's like oh hello friends yeah. and hide in a basement never mentioned again was that in the book that apparently was in the book and that's one of the things I think they probably could have cut but just didn't for the sake of authenticity to the mm. book but it was really weird and jarring like I know the capital is meant to be this overblown over aestheticized thing but a literal cat person just shows up for a single scene and it, it was akin to um, Kelsey Grammer's appearance at the end of the last X-Men movie just for <laughs> no reason just Sancho there Bob. no I mean I yeah I, and I think this is there might have been a Vice article or something about people who mm. do this who want to identify as animals and they're oh, called yeah, no, other kids. thing but it's just not mentioned in Hunger Games until that one moment right at the end in the middle of actually just after the death of a major character thinking about it and it, it's really weirdly structurally put yeah i think throwing in extra stuff like that when you're trying to get to the climax of the story Mm. maybe isn't advisable but um... speaking of the climax we've both been debating for about three years now would they keep the ending in and i'm glad they did i do think they sort of mess it up though because they do the bad thing well okay the narratively interesting thing and then they completely don't show katniss's reaction to it until about 20 minutes later. Yeah, it's because I, I think the ending of the book, it's um, there's a certain level of ambiguity to it, where, uh, which is very thematically rich, and it kind of, you know, I, I remember it having my mind blown when I read the books. Mm. I thought they were very good. And then with the movie, I think... Um, they they they're less ambiguous, and they go a certain direction with it. Wait, do you mean I the epilogue or the ending? Because, I, I was talking um, about the, um, the, the, the explosion. Uh, yeah, uh, I was I was th- I was talking more about the epilogue. Okay, like yeah, in yeah. terms of the ending, though, you said they kind of. Y- oh, I hated the epilogue. Yeah, I, I I thought they ruined it because that's what I love the book so much for. Because Harry Potter did the epilogue thing as well, and it was very twee and schmaltzy, and everyone lived happily ever after. Whereas Hunger Games did the epilogue thing, but did it correct, where it's all about PTSD and the fact that her and Peter are still I guess spoilers her and Peter survive uh, are both you're that's, so good at warning people about spoilers no but that's not the main character the main characters of course they do they're not going to kill off the main characters in the YA novel they kill off a different character <laughs> but um, no in the book I felt like it was a very authentic ending because Peter was mentally destroyed in Mockingjay and then rebuilt so he, of course he's severely damaged and I think there's a line about him just having to lock himself in a bedroom and punch the walls for a few hours every day when his mind just collapses. Yeah, after eight okay hours yeah. of this young adult movie, you're going to have scenes of, of like that dark. I you didn't know? need them to it's show like... it, but I felt like the epilogue in the movie, even the way it's looked, like it's got this kind of sunset happening in the background and it's all very nice. And there's like a single line of, sometimes we have bad days. 
but otherwise everything's lovely look now. there's sometimes there are some things you can express better in a book than you yes, can definitely. in film so i think that's what happened but on the whole i was pretty happy with this i would say it's kind of like i know i mean it's not the weakest of the series the first movie is the weakest <laughs> of the series uh catching fire and part one are possibly better uh yeah or, or, or uh, no i mean I, even then i would say it's like the, the this last movie is tied second with one of those and then the other one is the best film if that makes any sense like, yeah because i uh, you know I, I don't know why people were saying that like oh, oh it's fine it was, it was such a letdown it was weakest of the series no it's i, I let it think, like, it's just, i think it's just, it is a bit bland i think the energy kind of, kind of gone from it by this one and I, I the first hour was genuinely pissing me off and boring me once the action started the, it was fine Gwendolyn christie shows up and she's <laughs> awesome but only has one scene as uh, so, like that's yeah, kind of annoying i, I and... didn't know she was in this and she showed up I was like oh is that is that Gwendolyn christie i guess it is that's good she's in this oh she's gone that was entirety of her yeah and that, that kind of happens a bit with like woody harrelson's barely in this and mm-hmm. I, he was great as haymitch you yeah. know um philip seymour hoffman is barely in this you know <laughs> what was his pro- oh yeah uh sorry yeah, no but, but um, diva does not showing up really strong months. cast you know like you you have natalie dormer and um she was like, actually i do feel that oh. her jenna malone and sutherland completely sold the movie for their scenes and julianne moore like they weren't in it much donald sutherland actually i think finally got a good bit to do in this one and i really thoroughly enjoyed his final sort of monologue of Katniss in the greenhouse that was really mm. well done I actually feel like that twist worked a bit better in the movie than the books because the implied specter style someone else was organizing this whole thing the whole time sort of idea never really came through in the books I thought but in the movies like, actually I kind of buy that logic that um character was secretly slightly egging on a revolution toward their own gain to kind of thing I quite like that idea yeah. and I think it they sold a lot better in the movie than the books. And yeah, Sutherland was great. And his final cackle was pretty wonderful too. Yeah. The, the Really, the last, I think, hour was very strong. The epilogue was absolute horseshit. And the first hour was boring. But the middle sort of chunk, pretty good. So, I mean, do you think uh, people are going to look back on this uh, series, like the, the way you know they look back on beloved films like uh, Vincent Diesel's Riddick movies? You know, like, I'm just wondering, like, you know, is this going to be like Twilight where it's like, if you mention it now, it's like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. And like it, it and it doesn't stand the test of time, whereas other movies, you know, I, I, I struggle to think of like an iconic sort of uh, series of films at the moment that pe- lots of people really love and it kind of endures for years. But like, is Hunger Games going to be one of those? I feel it'll be more like the um, Dark Knight trilogy. I think it'll be kind of favorably looked back on, but also people go, oh, the ending wasn't great. And there was some weird stuff in the middle. But yeah, it was it was good. Pretty solid. Well made ish. I still think if I was ranking them, I'd probably say three, two, one, four. I know you didn't. You hmm. think four is the worst. I think four is the worst. It's well, just the most boring. Well, I mean, let's see then. Um, Jennifer Lawrence, obviously, bright future ahead of her. Uh, mm. Josh Hutcherson, Liam Hemsworth. Let's let's watch the two of them. See if they can. I think Hemsworth will get a lot of stuff out of this. I I don't know Hutcherson. He was always a weird choice, and I'm not sure what his range is. I haven't really seen him much beyond this, so I, I assume he can do other things, but. He was I, fine. He was fine. There are cuter boys than Peter <laughs> at my school, as as the Onion said in their review. You know, I, I, like I think his, give him a his chance. His attractiveness is his acting as well. Like it, it's fine. He's okay. Yeah. Give him a chance, okay? You know, but so I mean, let's see what happens with them. So yeah, I mean, that is the Hunger Games. But um, Actually, speaking of Hunger Games, quickly, did you see the Apocalypse trailer where Jennifer yes, Lawrence is again Apocalypse, playing Cat yeah. Everdeen and is giving rousing speeches to the troops? <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> And um, Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones. Uh, Looking for all Sansa. the world like Saoirse Ronan, which is very strange given that Saoirse Ronan was apparently the one that was first offered that role and turned it down. Yeah, but it's the young Storm. No, not Storm. No, she's uh, Jean Grey. Yeah, Jean Grey. Yeah, no, my apologies. I don't know X-Men that well, but X-Men Apocalypse I am open for. Yeah, so that's going to be out at some point next year. Speaking of Oscar Isaacs. 
Speaking of Oscar Isaac, yeah. He's in a movie. He's in a movie which, you know, we're going to discuss. And I suppose, you know, it, I mean, this is the Christmas season. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a movie out this month which we really should talk about. It was uh, appropriate, yeah, yeah. given the, the season. Given the season it is, this uh, is a yeah. Christmas horror comedy <laughs> called Krampus, which you saw, Richard. Uh, yes, tell us a bit about that. Which initially I didn't, I told you not to bother seeing. I assumed from the trailer it would be crap. And I kind of regret that you haven't seen it now because it's, it, it's kind of been a slow burn critical success, I feel. Like, I haven't seen the box office figures yet, but the reviews have been surprisingly positive. And a lot of people are saying this is like the next, this, like our generation sort of gremlins. And it, it's sort of a really good kind of PG-13 gateway horror movie. And it's it's like, it's not too scary. And like kids can watch it, but even for adults, there's a lot of nice dark humor in there. I don't know how they got Tony Collette. I really don't know why she's here. She's she's really good. Like Tony Collette's always good, but she's she's doing an awful lot with like a nothing script. Like she's given... Very little to do, but she's very good. Anyway, Krampus, to give a quick I, summary. I admire actors like that, though, who can... They, they will just go for it and, uh, you, you know, even if but they will get the most they can out mm. of a script. And, she's uh, really trying, so fair play to her. Uh, there's a lot of sort of... You'd know most of the actors, not if not, if not by name, like, what's his name? Champ from Anchorman's in it, and... There's that. Yeah. It's not so Kathy all these Bates. faces yes, you exactly, definitely yeah. know, but you can't name them. There's that not Kathy Bates actress whose name I can't remember either, who <laughs> plays kind of the surly old drunk aunt, and like you know all uh, these people from other things. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so the story is Krampus is, or sorry, Krampus, as the old lady keeps saying in the movie, is the Germanic, I think, anti-Santa, definitely sort of Scandinavian area, um, mm. that whole part of Europe. So, so is this some like pagan thing where instead of Santa showing up to good children, this yes. fucker shows up? He uh, is the to... devil to the god of Santa. So yeah, St. Nicholas would kind of reward good kids, uh, Krampus would show up and steal bad kids. Okay. Kidnap them and presumably murder them, I guess. See, that is a good premise. I was wondering why this hasn't been made into a movie yet, but I suppose it's because it it's Germanic no, it pagan stuff. The last yeah. five... Krampus is a weird thing. Like It was sort of the nice hipstery thing about five years ago. If you knew what Krampus was, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm so alternative. I know what the anti-Santa is. And I think some American sitcom started referencing it a lot, and suddenly in the last five years, there's been so many like schlock asylum-style Krampus movies. This is the first big budget one. Uh, Krampus himself isn't really in this movie a whole lot. They're disappointed. Wait, okay, it's a double-edged sword because I feel like if you overuse the monster in any horror movie, it devalues them. But if you don't use the title monster enough, it gets quite irritating, especially when he's actually quite well-designed. He moves in this very disconcerting way because he has, like, jingle bells on him, but he clearly, like, weighs a ton. So when you first see him bounding across rooftops like some deranged Batman, he's just this massive weighty thing just crashing down. It's like the sound of jingle bells. It's, it's really... It's good. It's really well done. Um, the outdoors snow sequences were very well shot. I don't think it fully works as either a horror or a comedy, even though it is kind of funny and kind of creepy. But if you're a follower of the War on Christmas, as has become a staple of the yearly news roundup in America, I feel this is the movie for you because it starts off with a slow mo Black Friday uh, like shopping spree happening over to the tunes of Most Wonderful Time of the Year which is funny, uh, people just like beating each other up and it's good. And the end of it, the ending, I think, is one of the best fake-outs I've seen in a while because this press screening I was in, it gets, it gets quite dark and then there's a cut to black and if it had ended at the cut to black, it would have been the darkest movie. But then it jumps to a different scene and people walked out. People, gen- like critics, walked out kind of going, no, I can't deal with this. This is this, You can't pull that crap in a movie. And I was sitting there going... I really, I love this movie so much up to this point, and then I wanted to burn the cinema down. But it's a fake out, and it does actually twist on itself, and has 
I think the most seasonally appropriate ending for any of these sort of quite twee Christmas movies and one of the most existentially saddening endings I've seen to a film all year. I don't want to explain it because it's a, it's, it wouldn't sound as good to explain it, but if you see it in context, I feel it's an incredibly good send-up of the whole idea that, oh, no, it's religious freedom. You can't... Uh, I have to have my Christmas with my, consumer, my, you know, my pagan tree celebrating a Jewish saviour. In this, you know, all that kind of crap, all the yeah. sort of appendages that we now have at Christmas that are nothing to do with the actual original holiday, the original kind of solstice holiday. And this, I feel like the ending is a nice, you can have your quote unquote perfect Christmas, but know that it itself is a product of like late capitalism. And if you want it to be perfect, here is your perfect Christmas. Enjoy your Faustian pact. And it's, it's yeah, the ending is pretty great. Um, the monster design is good. The, <laughs> what are you doing with your mouth? <laughs> I'm just uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> no, I genuinely think this is a really good Christmas ending because it's it does give you the yeah. happy the happy ending, and then the middle finger, and I, I quite like. That. Yeah, it's just you know I assume our listeners, you know, if they were recording this late December, you're probably listening to us right now because you're avoiding family members and you're trying to get through this difficult season. We're here for you, though. Which you is know. what this movie is about. It's about hating your family, then your family being murdered, and you feeling bad about your family being murdered. But like on the whole, you'd and recommend it? Oh, absolutely. It does sound intriguing. I would like, recommend it. It was good fun. It'd be good for a group watch. I, I'm kind of sad I saw it on my own. Well, again, a room full of critics. But I think it'd be good for a group watch. I can imagine it would probably play quite well to crowds. I think it could enter people's sort of anti like alternative Christmas movie lists. Uh, it's not quite a Die Hard or mm. a Gremlins, but it is, you know, it's it's pretty solid. Mm. Um, I suppose while we're on the topic... Um, mm-hmm. You know, is there a Christmas movie that is a sort of classic one? Because, I mean, I suppose for me, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's just great performance in it choice, is yes. so moving. And, again, I know it's a safe choice and it's <laughs> schmaltzy as hell. But, I mean, so much of it is relatable. And, like, they, they build up the character so well where it's not just, oh, drummer's jar, so nice as guy. He's, like, there are scenes early on where he, like, he'll lose his temper and it'll get mm. dark. So it doesn't just come out of nowhere then where it gets really dark towards the end. And it has a nice happy ending, you know, and I think that that's a kind of nice sort of thing to watch at Christmas. Uh, well, I mean, what kind of... Do you have a Christmas movie in particular well, you enjoy? I feel obliged to say Die Hard, and Die Hard is very good, but that would be my second favourite Christmas movie. <sighs> What's your first? It's Batman Returns. Uh, you see, the thing about Christmas movies to me is... That's not what I meant. <laughs> Christmas movies to me, the problem is that I can't stand all that twee nonsense of, oh, here's a little girl, and she, her dad died, and then Santa brought her a new dad, or, you know, that... Uh, Miracle my... on 34th Street was heartwarming. <laughs> you know, the late Richard Attenborough, you know, he was he, he was the perfect Santa Claus. What, I think more like that Michael Keaton, Jack Frost film. Did you ever see that? <laughs> oh, God, the CG snowman. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. That's kind of what I think of. I think of, like, you know, Christmas movies, like that kind of crap. But speaking mm. of Michael Keaton movies, no, Batman Returns is my favorite one because I judge Christmas movies on the sort of the, the feeling of Christmas, like the sense of it. And I think Tim Burton's weird, gothic, snowy Christmas with like Danny DeVito screaming and biting people's noses off. That for me, like there's, there's shots of the Batmobile going around Gotham in the snow, and like that for me is the yeah. perfect kind of Christmas. Like aesthetically, yeah, aesthetically, does the Christmas hourly, is Christmas yeah. portrayed in a way that suits the story, and does it come across well? Exactly, and it's also it's yeah. kind of dark. Like there's still a happy-ish ending, but it's it's kind of a little bit darker. It's a little bit sort of. It's happy, but it's also still referencing these are all orphans, you know, Batman, Steve Kyle. They're all basically messed up people, but you know they have a good Christmas kind of. Mm. Uh, yeah. But Krampus, I think, is a better job of sort of giving you the finger. So, yeah, cool. see Krampus. Okay, well, you know, any of our listeners, you have a particular favorite Christmas movie, uh, get in touch. Send us a tweet. On this phone number. Insert phone <laughs> number here. Yes, it'll be grand. So, now then, um, 
I suppose I better talk about this movie where, mm-hmm. you know, people were really excited for because, I mean, to see these actors together again in a movie finally after so many years. Yes, tell me more. People were going into this with such high expectations. But I think Sisters was a real letdown. You know, I mean, I, I accept that everyone loves Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And they're great. They are so let down with this material. This this is... Did uh, they write it themselves or was comedy. it written for them? Uh, Richard, Richard, Richard. I'm sure if you were in Hollywood, you know, in, in these executive boardrooms, you know, decisions... Getting a woman right. There would be decisions that make sense. No, no, there is a woman who, who wrote the okay. screenplay, but she doesn't seem to be a, anyone of note. I, I think she was involved in Saturday Night Live somehow, which okay. I was never big on, but, mm. you know, obviously that's how Faye and Polar got famous. And they're great, but they're so let down by the script. If you have the two of them together in a movie, get them to write the script, because they are very funny. They get this script, which is... Oh, it's um, so boring, so contrived to the story that it's so thin as well. I can imagine the conversation they had is just like, oh, we got the Golden Globes. Yeah, Faye and Polar are great. They should do a movie together. And just like, um, okay, I've signed them on, but like they're only free for these two months. Okay, so what's this movie about? Uh, uh, they're best friends. No, no, they're sisters. Yes, we could call it sisters. Okay, so what did they do? Um, well, their their parents are selling their childhood home. And they, they go back to the childhood home and they, they want to have one last big party with all their school friends. Great! Yeah, no, because, you know, people getting drunk is funny. People doing drugs is funny. People dancing is funny. They'll be dancing as well. What is this with comedy films? This happens so often in comedies, even ones I like, especially American films. Yeah. There's a scene where the characters dance and it goes on for ages. And I'm just like, what is what is so amusing about seeing actors in a movie dance i just don't get why there are these scenes devoted to it because it's always embarrassing so it makes them more relatable i guess i don't know i i think that's kind of the idea that it's just the humor in this movie anyway is just based on embarrassment yeah that can be funny. it's all really cheap jokes you know it's like it's oh i mean the way you describe the structure it does sound like an am sandler movie but still you know, it's it's on that level. Yeah. It's about on that. There's a scene where um, the new people trying to buy the child at home, they're leaving and the sprinklers go on and they get wet and they're going, ah, ah, and Faye and Polar are laughing at them. Like, it's the funniest thing ever. They got wet. And there's no further joke to no. it. There's no further joke to it. That's just it. And I've got I've got some fans of the movie Sisters, sort of, that I've, I've angered them, but like, you know. Trying no, fuck you. Jack Nicholson their way to the walls. <sighs> no, it was so bad. Like, here are some... You know, like the here are some choice lines from it. You know, like um, what kind of surname is Geert? It sounds like a queef on a yoga ball. Ooh, I hate her. She always looks like she's trying to fart sideways. Ooh, I hate lying. It gives me guilt diarrhea. These are direct quotes from the movie. They're funny. I like those lines. No, they're not. It's the context that makes a fart joke funny. And I think female-centered comedy, they are underrepresented in this field. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think, you know, Bridesmaids did it well. Obvious Child did it well. Here, they're just saying the words. They're just saying the words to, like... Like, and, and but it's just no joke to it. There's train wreck is a good comparison actually mm-hmm. because lots of people like Amy Schumer they're really excited for this movie and then it's really dull and Disagree, so many of the okay. jokes fall flat. It's so see that's this why is I, worse I, than I didn't train wreck, see though. Sisters because you told me it was absolute crap so I didn't watch it and then good friends of mine who I saw train wreck with and really enjoyed train wreck with said it was great so I'm now probably going to have to see it and find out which of you is right. I'm not I'm not seeing this. There you have the okay, another example of another thing they do is like they'll reference stuff. They have Maya Rudolph and some other people mm-hmm. watching Game of Thrones and it's like season 1 episode 2 of Game of Thrones in 2015 Nerd. and they're 
but that you can that you know that <laughs> I can recognize that it was from early season. The point being that you know neighbors did this as well a few probably a ted movies a few a few American comedies have done this now where they'll mention Game of Thrones, but they won't like it's just funny that they've mentioned it for some reason. Like I, I'm, I'm. That's another thing I'm sick of seeing in American comedies. It's just that's really weird. That's but not anyway. going away. I actually don't mind that in comedies as much because I think it's it's already sort of a you're not invested in the story. In Gee, Brian, really. this is worse than the time we were watching Game of Thrones and we were watching Game of Thrones and we were sitting there and Game of Thrones was on because we've mentioned Game of Thrones. Yeah. That's the kind. No, of I know. Yeah, that, that's annoying. I still find it much worse in non-comedy movies. For example, in the recent Fan Forstick, aka Fantastic Four 2015. <laughs> There's a line like, oh, I'm putting this on Instagram. Or the bit like Thor 1 when Kat yeah. Denning's like, oh, it's going on Facebook. Like, that annoys me way more than <laughs> a comedy movie putting in a Game of Thrones reference. Yes. I agree with you. It's all annoying, but it's not going away. So, But look, I think with good characters, mm-hmm. this could have worked and it doesn't. It goes on for like two hours. I think if this was like 80, 90 <laughs> minutes long. Yeah, 80, 90 minutes long, it's fine. It's a bit of harmless fluff. I think the fact that it's so long and they try to have a story about how Amy Poehler is the sensible one, and Tina Fey is a, a bit of a mess, a train wreck, if you will. But Tina Fey has a daughter, and she's trying to get on with the daughter, and they don't really get on. And it's like Fey and Poehler have swapped the kind of characters they typically play, because you know, certainly they were in a movie together, Baby Mama, you know, which is it's not a hilarious movie, but it's a lot better than Sisters. Mm. And I think they're known as Fey is more the sensible one, and Poehler the one is the one who's a bit more wacky. So they start off this movie where they kind of swap around, and they're playing the other's kind of character. But then when the party starts, uh, you know, Faye's like, "Listen, I just want to have one night of fun where I don't have to be a mother and be responsible for other people. So can you be the party mom tonight?" And then they go back to playing the kind of characters they usually play. So they kind of flipped okay. it around for no reason. But the characters just, it's its also contrived that the parents are not funny at all. It's like, it's its so painful. Then all the different characters start showing up to the party, all these friends they've had from school. And there are people in it like Samantha B from The Daily Show, John Lutz from 30 Rock, Kate McKinnon from Saturday Night Live. There are all these really, really funny people, Rachel Dratch from Saturday Night Live. And they all get kind of funny things to do with their characters, but not much. It's all these talented people showing up and they're not giving enough material to work with. But they... They do some really screwy things with some Seems of the characters. To be a trope today. There is one. There is one character who they're inviting people on Facebook, and they go, "Ooh, not him. He's the guy who always makes really bad jokes, like compulsively. Yeah, oh, he's such a drag. Let's not invite him." And I just said, "You're you're not actually setting up a character where the joke is that they're not funny. That is like you know when The Simpsons. You know that's all Krusty the Clown's character became. It's just death. It's just, and then the character shows up." And yeah, he is annoying, and it's and like the characters in the movie said, he's so annoying, but he's just like he's so annoying. It's just like you know, but you don't set up a character like this where it's meant to be annoying, and he's not. And now, I mean, I suppose it kind of gets better towards the end. Once it gets going, the kind of the jokes start landing a bit more often, and they get a bit funnier. But the whole thing's still a real contrivance, and uh, oh, it's just so disappointing because you know the people involved are capable of so much better. But you see the outtakes at the end during the credits, and you can see they were having a laugh riot when they were making it. They were having so much fun making it. But uh, I think when that happens, I think that kind of blinds you to how bad the material is because you just think, oh, this is all fun. Even if it's, even the movie doesn't work out, at least we had a good time making it, you know. But it, it's it's all this oh horrible like people. You know, really hacky humor. You know, Koreans are stereotyped as not speaking good English. There's a five minute scene where Amy Poehler is trying to pronounce a Korean woman's name, and then the Korean woman can't pronounce theirs. 
and they're all sort of portrayed so stereotypically. A group of lesbians is portrayed stereotypically as well. As, oh, great, the lesbians are here. Another direct quote. Like, it's just, oh, it's so lazy. It's such hacky comedy writing. And, you know, people are just going to think, oh, Faye and Polar are in this. They're great. No, no, they're not good in this. They actually need a good script to work with. So, uh, yeah, no, I would avoid this movie like the clap. Not the plague. Um, I, I I wanted to sort of keep my references up to date, you know, mm. un, unlike the movie Sisters. I, uh, um, <laughs> but look, I mean, that's how I felt about Sisters. There was another movie we saw recently that was very good, of course. And I think there's been a lot of buzz for this movie. You've probably heard all sorts of things about it at this stage. But it's not out in the cinema until January 1st. Um, it's The Danish Girl, of course, you know, yeah, so I can tell indeed. you a bit about that now. And... Um, it was great. You know, I think it's... You will see the trailer and you will think it is Oscar bait. It mm-hmm. is Oscar bait. <laughs> you know, it it has all the elements there of... Um, Eddie Redmayne, you know, is undergoing a physical transformation and his wife supports him. He's he's, got, he's starting to get typecast as this, really, because that's what Theory of Everything was about. <laughs> well, given how much you enjoyed it, I haven't seen Danish Girl yet, how much you enjoyed it, maybe this is the year that the Oscar bait thing books the trend. Like, between... Because Carol, I really was surprised with it, and you're saying now Danish Girl was equally as good, so that's... Yeah. Maybe Oscar bait doesn't have to be a dirty word anymore. Yeah, and do you remember the butler? Forrest Whitaker oh, yeah. plays the Never butler to several presidents. Yes. That didn't get a single Oscar nomination. Good. Like for anything, not even the technical categories. And I was encouraged by that because the butler is so cynically mm. engineered to be exactly that kind of movie. And it, it still wasn't terrible. It was okay, but it's just sort of the, the definition of Oscar bait, which is that it's really bland and middling and safe in order to appeal to Oscar voters. Yeah. And there'll be some good performances in it, but it's not really that remarkable as a movie. Whereas this, uh, The Danish Girl, I think it is a remarkable movie, yet at the same time, it is about the actors. It's kind of, you know, the strength of their performance is what's going to sell it. Uh, Eddie Redmayne is fantastic. He's he's great in this. There, there was a kind of weird problem at the start of the movie, though, where he's... Um, uh, like he plays Einar Wegner, who is the first one of the first people in the world to ever undergo a sex change operation. So I mean, I, like that in itself is a really fascinating story. Where at the time, you know, people aren't familiar with transgenderism; they're certainly not tolerant of it. But this yeah. is the first person who's thinking, "I'm actually going to try and get my genitals changed." You know, I'll risk that on this unproven surgery. So that's like, you know, it's a really compelling story. But you you have to kind of get inside the head of a trans person in order to sell the story mm-hmm. there are a couple of scenes where Redmayne is so fragile and so and they they just express something perfectly it happens a couple of times there's one scene in particular where he says uh, like the female alter ego he's developing is called Lily and at one point he, he says when I dream it's it's Lily's dreams uh, I, I just remembered hearing that and going that's like because that's like Possibly, it's certainly the most succinct explanation of transgenderism mm. I've ever heard. So you just kind of, you know, and it's it's one of the most heartbreaking because it's just the way it's delivered. I reckon Redmayne will get another Oscar. <laughs> I think Leo might be disappointed again because Leo is just doing all sorts of crazy shit for The Revenant. Uh, I think but he's not that amazing. I'm always amazed by this whole, oh, Leo should get an Oscar. He's fine. <laughs> I don't understand it. Why Why is everyone love I him? I think people, okay. just, people just want it to happen now uh, for some reason. So Do they want to just, like, quit acting? Just like, get an Oscar so he'll just stop and go away? Is that is that what it is? Uh, he has yachts full of supermodels to date, so sure. Yeah, maybe maybe he'll just do that. Um, I think Redmayne is 
He's so solid, though. I mean, there's there's only... Yeah, I was, I was mentioning some early scenes. The only time it doesn't work where you don't feel sympathetic are these early scenes where he's, like, in a theater meeting a friend of his, mm-hmm. and he's, like, in up in the rafters, and it's dark, and he's, like, touching women's clothes as he goes along, which I kind of thought... I thought the story was that his wife asked him to try and tights so she could finish a painting, and that's when he discovered it. But the movie makes it imply that he's kind of had this underlying creep. thing all along which yeah no exactly and in a creepy way it would be fine if it yeah. if it wasn't sort of in a creepy way but the fact that they make it seem kind of creepy and it's especially when he's talking to this other character and it's a low angle shot and it's chiaroscuro lighting which means it's like dark and it's mainly dark but there are bits of light and he has this big grin on his face and it's just odd because it <laughs> makes him look so sinister and it's wrong it's completely wrong for what this story is trying to do uh, so there's some early scenes like that where it's weird. I, I can already see the the fake trailer someone cuts together yeah. where he's like a Silence of the Lambs kind of psychopath, like um, which is such a shame because after these awkward scenes early on in the movie, it gets really good and it's all shot really well. Yeah, you know that like and often it's just the the actor's face is framed really well. It's the same director and cinematographer as The King's Speech, which. Again, it's an Oscar bait movie, but it was actually pretty okay. It was pretty good. And they, they kind of shoot it that way where it's the actor's face telling the story. So it obviously works really well with Red Redmayne, but Alicia Vikander is someone I'm enthralled by. She's a great actress. She's been in Ex Machina and The Man from Uncle this year, and she plays the wife in this. And what what's what's good about it is that this could have been just the movie about Einar Wegner becoming Lily, and that would have been fine as a story. The wife's story is really interesting, though, as well, because it's like it's about her strength and her love uh, for this person and staying with him. And 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 scenes then where it's like she misses her husband and she wants to she wants her husband back. And it's completely understandable desire to have, but it's in direct conflict with Lily's desire. And they're both sort of, you know, they're, they're, you get why each of them wants that thing so badly but you also get why they're incompatible and yeah. neither of them is presented as selfish. You know, it's, it's not like, it's not like she's saying to Lily, oh, look, will you stop this? Just be a man and put this, like she's not cruel or anything, mm. but it just shows, uh, shows the conflict they had and it's just heartbreaking. And I, I think it did pack a real emotional punch. Now it's, it's kind of a shame. There's a thing they do in the very last scene in the movie where there's some really schmaltzy sentimental imagery to kind of like you know type the theme of the story and I, I just I was a bit disappointed by that because I kind of felt like up until that point it's dark like it shows yeah. them like undergoing hormone therapy and getting diagnosed as a schizophrenic rather than transgendered and it's it's just like there's some really dark gritty stuff in it so it's not a sort of schmaltzy hold your hand movie at all until like the very last scene but you know, on the whole, it works, and it's it's so well designed. It's all set in like nineteen twenties, thirties Europe, so you get the sort of glamour flapper style or whatever mm. it's called of the time. And it's a movie about this. They were two painters, and and they were real people as well. Uh, they were painters in the Danish art scene at the time. This movie has so many frames that are like a painting. It's just a beautifully made movie, and it's out in the first of January. So I'd definitely say go see it. Maybe I will. I mean, no, I admit though, by the time the ending does sound very irritating because that's one, another reason I really loved Carol was because I thought they stuck the landing really well on that. It wasn't melodramatic; it was quite landings nuanced. are hard to they, get right though. They you are, know, it's they it's are. actually uh, Max Landis said something recently. It's just like it's actually a miracle whenever a good movie gets made because pretty much yeah. there are so many things that could go wrong. One of the costumes could be wrong. One of the scenes could be wrong. Like I was saying, it was kind of like hmm. 
if the ending had been slightly different, you know, this no, no, no. I, I would say the Danish Girl is a great movie. That I mean, the ending is a bit like it's not like the rest of the movie, but don't let that put you off. I think it's 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 a really great story. Well, speaking of things Max Land has opinions on, I suppose we should actually get to um. What, get to the called? big, the big release because okay, I mean, uh, okay, look, we've been asking you around, <laughs> uh, we've been putting this off long enough, but you know, it's that big franchise of movies, of classic movies that everyone loves, and you know, th- there's been a series of about six of these movies so far, and they got really goofy, and there were all sorts of weird filmmaking decisions that people are just have divided so many people. So now there is all this hype around this movie. Is this going to save the franchise? Creed, starring Sylvester Stallone and Michael B. Jordan. Uh, will we talk about Star Wars? I suppose I feel somewhat contractually obliged to. Yeah. The second movie in as many months to waste Gwendolyn Christie, which is an impressive sort of trope to engage Do in. Do not waste Gwendolyn Christie, filmmaker. She is awesome. She's like a she's she's a bit Tilda Swinton-esque, if you ever see That's her That's actually in a good comparison. Like, I'd go with that, yeah. She's, she's about as awesome as she is, basically. And but she could she's, snap Tilda Swinton in half in a fight. She's Brienne of Tarth in Game of Thrones, as you probably know, but she's, yeah, no, she's in Hunger Games and Star Wars, and mm-hmm. she's very minor parts in both, which is a shame, because she's awesome. <laughs> well, at least we know for Star Wars, she is contracted for a few more, so she'll be, she'll be Phasma will be in the next ones, which is good, because there was no character there. People have argued that the only reason she exists in the movie is to give a single recognizable stormtrooper so that when they need to power down the shield, they can point, the audience will know who that is. Which, on a screenwriting level, makes a lot of sense, but it's very irritating to cast someone as like cool as Gwendolyn Christie in that role. In general, there are like a lot more female characters in this particular Star mm-hmm. Wars movie than there ever have been. Like, you know, it's like. There was just Princess Leia in the in the original movies, pretty much. Now I was going to have... say more black people too, but there isn't. There's one black guy, which is in keeping with the ratio of black people to non-black people well, in Star Wars the, movies. There was a double whammy with uh, Maz Katana, the CG character played by Lupita Nyong'o. Oh, yes. She won the Oscar for 12 Years a Slave, and she's in this doing motion captures as like a pretty good female character as Maz, well. Maz, I think the character's name is. Maz, yeah. yeah. Um, although I heard her scenes were cut down heavily. Really? Which... I couldn't see there being much more to it than that. Well, but, but this is a... Character, it's we're we're kind of going all over the place, but there's definitely a more diverse cast to this movie. But across the board, it's really strong. Like it's, I think, yeah, we should sort of lay the groundwork here. Neither of us are particularly big Star Wars fans. I know I went through phases of really being into it. Basically, when Episode One came out, I was like, "Ooh, this is cool." And yeah. Three came out, "Ooh, this is cool." But as a kid, I never cared at all for the original films. I found them quite boring. I've always enjoyed the Sith, the bad guys. I've always enjoyed. The universe and the mythology, but the films themselves always just bored me. No, but you see, the films themselves, really the the films themselves were based on like Joseph Campbell's mythology yeah. and so. And the, the story structure is quite. The stories are a lot more basic than people give them credit for. Mm. But they're they're as examples of Hollywood filmmaking. They're good examples of it, which you know they they the proof is in the pudding that they've catched on and they've become so iconic. I think that's why I found them boring because they're just the story is too by the numbers. It is too like it's literally the hero's journey just. With this yeah, but change. also when I when Phantom Menace came out, I, I think we were both like eight or nine yeah. when it came out. I thought Jar Jar Binks was great. No, I'll, I'll say that on record, you know, <laughs> and I think it's okay for me because I was I was the right age to see it. That's who Jar Jar Binks was designed for. It was autistic kids like me, and um, you know, but you know, the prequels, it's fascinating just how much you can delve into the insane filmmaking and screenwriting decisions of the prequels. There, there was a channel on YouTube called Red Leisure Media who. If you haven't seen their reviews of the prequels, I would really recommend because they're not only really funny, they get into like really insightful stuff about screenwriting and just mm. how the prequels are so bizarre compared to uh, the original movies. So they had a, they had a big task with um, 
this movie anyway, getting episode seven right and making sure they would strike the right balance, which is away from the prequels. Veer away as far as you can. Well, that's actually, like, if I had a major issue with it, it is that it's trying too hard to be a New Hope again. Well, kind of a compound of New Hope and Jedi. It is Empire. a lot of the same plot elements as it, New yes, Hope. Yes, it's essentially the same movie and with just a slight change of character. And like they basically go through... New Hope and Luke is a girl now. one straight run. Yeah, Luke is a girl now, but still on Desert Planet. Not, not actual still... Luke Skywalker, but the new protagonist is Rey, played by Daisy Ridley. This is her first movie. She's been in She's some like, really TV good. stuff for students' short films. She'd be an amazing Lara Croft, I think. That's why I couldn't Ooh. stop thinking that. that she'd be... Cause was Hollywood like, has already Jennifer thought Lawrence of that. would be a good cast for that, but no, she'd actually be much better. That's irrelevant to this conversation. Um, <laughs> I think on the whole, yeah, the cast were good. I was a bit worried about the returning cast, because Harrison Ford famously despises working seemingly but especially star wars and it was weird seeing both the interviews where he's enthusiastic and even the trailers were like oh my god is he is he smiling is his face capable of such movements yeah. and he's he's really good in this he he's han solo in this it recently like, i've never liked han solo but he is really good in this i liked han solo uh, recently he's yeah. done a lot and i think like you i kind of you know i liked star wars but i wasn't like the huge massive yeah. fan of it i liked the jedi and sith dynamic mm. and the whole myth- mythological aspects to it but Han Solo is more the other, the Millennium Falcon X-Wing TIE fighter side of Star Wars that people mm-hmm. seem to really like. But it's the exact same character you saw in the original movies. And I think the concern going into this was that Harrison Ford, because for so long he's just... He phones in a lot of his performances. I'd say all of them. I think he's a great actor when he wants to be, yeah. but he, most of the time he doesn't want to be. He just wants to get the paycheck. So he shows up and he does grumpy old man Harrison mm-hmm. Ford, which is what he did for the Indiana Jones 4 in this though, Cowboys and Aliens. Yeah, but the, the other film he co-starred with Daniel Craig in. <laughs> Daniel Craig has a voice cameo as a stormtrooper in this in great. Force Awakens, weirdly <laughs> enough. But Harrison Ford in this, anyway, he's not being Harrison Ford in this. He's being Han Solo mm. again. Uh, it's great continuity to that. Like so, so is Carrie Fisher as Leia. Although no, she's she's a bit different, isn't she? Carrie like, Fisher she's... thing concerns me more than anything else because I love Carrie Fisher. Uh, that's the one thing in the original trilogy. I always found Luke boring and Han boring. I always like Leia, but. Carrie Fisher in real life is just the best human. She just <laughs> does not give a single shit about anyone or in interviews. But in this movie, I was like, ah, oh, can she still do it? And to their credit, I whatever makeup they had, whatever hair they did, whatever weight they made her lose, which apparently they did, like she looks like Leia. I still because Carrie Fisher doesn't look like Leia in real life anymore. But in this movie, they just somehow manage it. She looks yeah. like an older Leia. And she again, still sounds like Carrie Fisher though. But she's a, yeah, that that's the thing. She doesn't sound quite the same as Leia. She sounds a bit more like Carrie Fisher. Yeah. But she's still a solid she's very actor good. Yeah, who really sold good. the performance. Yeah. And I think Completely. it was partly because the dynamic was really good. It is it is funny that they're kind of. Um, it's not too much of a spoiler to say yeah. they they've been separated in mm-hmm. this, and I, that that's kind of funny because you'd kind of look at the prequels and think, yeah, that wouldn't it, not not the prequels, the original movie, and yeah. think, yeah, that wouldn't work out. <laughs> that like so exactly, it's kind yeah. of funny how realistic the movie about lightsabers and um, droids and stuff is that they get that part right. So I th- I think that that is a good aspect to it where the characters are so strong, not just the old ones. You know, you know Finn John Boyega, he, he was great. He was so funny. He was no, great. This is this is my one major sticking point. People keep saying this. I didn't think a lot of those jokes worked. Uh, I I actually found the writing for Finn quite irritating because. Bear with me on this train of logic. The way they wrote Ray felt like that character could have been anyone. It just happened to have cast a woman. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, they didn't write it as a strong female character trademark. It was just a character that happened to be a woman. Fine. Mm. I felt like they wrote Finn knowing they were going to cast a black guy and he would be kind of the funny one. A lot of those lines sort of... They didn't quite hit stereotype level, but they felt like they were close to it. And it 
some of them I don't get me that. I, and I, I know that when they were casting, they were keeping it open in terms yeah. of ethnicity. So it might have been like a black girl and a white guy or, mm-hmm. or something. And, and and like I know Oscar Isaac is Latino. He plays uh, Poe Dameron in this. He's, a, pilot. Also, He's he? a Han Solo-esque kind yeah. of pilot. He's really good he though, and like I, really obviously Ex Machina, a million other things he's been yeah. class in inside the Will and Davis. You know, he um, was so good in this, and I think what what reassured me was largely him. But it was just sort of the opening moments of the movie where I I, I could I knew I could judge by the opening shot whether or not this movie was going to work. And the opening shot is a, a star destroyer like going across a planet, mm-hmm. and I kind of thought okay, good, they're getting this, they're getting that it's about scale and sweep, it's not about, you know, going to, into a trade federation ship to talk about the ambassadors are Jedi Knights and blah, blah, yeah, blah. But every single um, one of them starts off with a Star Destroyer over planet. Like, even the prequels basically did that. It may um, have been a trade federation ship, but it was a ship going into a planet. But they get down to the planet, and Kylo Ren, the villain, shows up mm. and uh, crosses paths with Poe Dameron, uh, or he actually stops his blaster with the Force, and then he just kneels down, the stormtroopers Which bring him over. Which he conveniently can't do later on. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Stormtroopers bring him down, and he's face to face with this Sith, you know, with another mask obscuring his face. And there's this big long pause, and then Oscar Isaac says, "Do you talk, or or do I talk? How does this work?" Just uh, no. When that happens, first of all, it shows how kind of cocky he is. That yeah. I kind of like. I love how he's not taking him seriously, but then it means what that means for the movie is, I now know what tone they're going for. There's going to be some really serious dark stuff. But then there's also going to be, you know, some self-aware humor to it, and they're going to have that balance to it. And that's when I was, I, I smiled and I thought, yeah, this is going to be good. The humor was a bit hit and miss for me, but then it always has been Star Wars. But speaking of that opening scene, this is the thing because I, I had been reading some of Max Landis's tweets just to get back to Max Landis quickly about because he didn't like this movie at all. Uh, I don't agree. I don't agree with a lot of what he said, but he did say one thing, which was uh, he was saying stuff like, you know, Star Trek isn't about hiking, blah blah, isn't about blah blah. blah. Star Wars isn't about the war. It was an adventure movie. And I didn't really get what he meant by that until I saw it. And that opening sequence in Force Awakens, it really is a war movie. And it does feel out of place because, like, they do. They, they round up a lot of villagers. They massacre them. There's flames. It felt, like, very much like an 80s movie. It felt like they were refer- they're referencing, like, Vietnam almost. And I, it did feel out of place. And then the humor then interspersed with, like, them massacring a village was very weird. And I I think uh, Oscar, to, to be clear, Oscar Isaac doesn't say this right after a village has been massacred. He says he it's right, right before. before. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> you can do that. You know, I think it would be flippant if it was the other way around. But um, I think more impressive than the humor, I think, was the fact that BB-8 worked. Because I think all yes. the priests really stuff, like, oh, this looks annoying. Oh, but... God, this, no, this new droid um, kind of a replacement for R2-D2, but it works so well because there's actually a character that comes across, mm-hmm. which is great. Uh, quite enjoyed that. I think the lightsaber battle at the end of this movie is probably the best in the series it looked having a lightsaber fight in the snow was the best idea they could have done and also no one did like crazy cgi flips there was no weird like dance like movement it was an actual sword fight between two people one of whom was trained one of whom wasn't and it was flailing can i tell you why and it was great can i tell you why it was so intense Mm mm-hmm I was delighted. There's a scene where these car- all these different smugglers show up to tell Han Solo, like, oh, you owe us this and blah, blah, blah. And this is the last time, Han. Two of them are the guys from the Raid movies. Yes. It's Rama and Mad Dog from the Raid movies. And when I saw them, I, I, like, I almost cheered. It's kind of, I didn't know they were in this. And then in the credits, I saw they were the ones who chor- choreographed the stunts in this movie. 
So if you've seen the Raid movie, see the, stop listening to this and watch the Raid movies. They're fantastic martial arts movies. They were the ones who did the lightsaber fight. It doesn't fights really come this. across. Like, it's a very it doesn't come across. They, they adapted it quite well, but mm. it, it was just the right balance between the original movies, like really stiff, awkward yeah. choreography and prequels going really over the top with how fluid it got. It was the right middle ground. And it was awesome. And I, th- I think, the, like I said, the Jedi and Sif and the lightsaber battles are probably my favorite aspect yeah. of these movies. And I was really happy they got that right. I wouldn't say the lightsaber battles are my favorite part. I just like the aesthetic of the Sith. Like I, the Return of the Jedi for me is an incredibly boring movie. The only bit I enjoy is when Palpatine's there because he's yeah. just a wonderful character. Because Ian McDiarmid knows he's... how goofy it is. So he's the only one who isn't stiff and just goes for it especially in the prequels he just goes over the top think, yeah, knowing it's no, bad and no, like, no, no. that bit was almost too far I feel. <laughs> <laughs> was great. no we had the most fun with it so um, yeah, that, so that I mean, worried me into this one Like the, I thought it would just be Donald Gleeson and um, Adam Driver and there would be no Ian McDermott but thankfully there is a Ian McDermott style character played by Andy Serkis yes who <laughs> he's introduced as like what is this this is insane oh it's a hologram yeah but no it looks <laughs> giant it looks like he's 19 feet tall and but then it turns out it's a hologram that mm. fades so maybe in the next movie if they come back it's probably just gonna be like four feet tall like Yoda I think or something so. or, um, but they, you know, so, so that was a cool reveal um I, and I think there were lots of cool Do- Donald Gleason was good he I like Donald Gleason's fascism I think he gave a speech that was very Donald Hitler-like Gleason and yeah. no this <laughs> really? is the perfect because here's the problem Donald Gleason doesn't work as a protagonist it almost worked Aww. in Franked because in Franked. It in worked Franked. in Ex Machina. Yeah, I'm gonna get that. It works in Frank because you're meant to hate him, kind of. He's still annoying. In Ex Machina, again, you're not really meant to like that character an awful lot, so it sort of works. But he's not really relatable or likable. So having him as like the weedy middleman is perfect casting. You see, no, I thought that was his problem is that he gets typecast as the everyman kind of guy. He's the yeah, skinny, lanky like guy he's, who's unassuming, un- yeah, unimposing, and he's though. like. He needs to have an ulterior motive. That's why in Ex Machina well, and in Frank, him kind of being this selfish asshole almost works. But I still feel he's a protagonist, and therefore you can't. I don't. I don't think anyone can relate to Donald Gleeson. But but in this in this he <laughs> he just he this. plays like the kind of Peter Cushing kind of role. And, yeah, nowhere near um, as well Peter Cushing, but he's yeah. But he gives a speech to a fascist. What's essentially a fascist rally, mm-hmm. just as the Star Killer blows up six planets. This is one problem that, that did bother me that the instead of a Death Star, there is a Star Killer, which is a massive planet, and it blows up six planets. At once not just one planet at once so it's just it's the same thing again but upping the ante and i suppose it was a nice moment when they're at the briefing discussing this and han solo says okay how do we blow it up yeah well it's just like no there's always a way to blow (laughs) these up and it's just like actually funnily enough there is and i just kind of thought so so i mean okay i like how han solo does make fun of it that is self-aware enough to say oh not this again in keeping with a trope that i've noticed in the last years did you enjoy the fact that it was solar powered In keeping with the clean energy no, as... <laughs> no, but here's the thing. It it's was anti-environmental be, because how they get the power for this one is they actually suck a sun yeah. dry, basically, and use the power from that. But that's that's not environmentally sound because you're taking away, you're diminishing the energy source, whereas the point of solar power is you're just no, capturing the No, but it is literally solar powered. It is the most literal use of the phrase solar power. What, what, what were they going to do when the sun ran out? Oh, no, I they move somewhere else. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Like, is there more suns, or what happens? Like, but anyway, um... I mean, you're getting the sense that, like, okay, okay, there are plot holes and there are stupid things about this yeah, movie. There always is. That's not a problem. I kind of feel like with every bad thing about this movie, I can think of five things I liked. Whereas yeah, with the prequels, I, I can that. think of something I liked, but I can think of five bad things immediately about the prequels. I still think so. there was a few things that annoy me. Like, I, I think this is really, as much as I enjoy Daisy Ridley, I think this is still Kylo Ren's movie. The problem is, and I think this is intentionally kind of in canon with the movie itself. He's great with the mask on, 
as soon as he takes it off, it's Adam Driver's big dorky face and voice. That's kind of the idea, though. Yeah, because he of, wears it to intimidate people. What's going on with this character is by far he's the most interesting Sith villain they've mm-hmm. had so far because the, the most going on emotionally, really conflicted as stuff as well. There's actually a scene where he's he's being afraid of being tempted by the light side. Yeah, it's which just, I think it's is it, kind of funny, but it's, it's, it's a near well, conflict to the character, and I think the point of the character is that. When he takes that mask off, he's he's that <laughs> from girls, yeah. and he's like he's just a dork. The point is that when he has the mask on, he's intimidating people, and he's he's basically like a coward. I I, I thought it worked really well, and and it's high praise coming from me because I do really hate Adam Driver, <laughs> but he's great in this, and I kind of think the sort of contrast between what he's like with the mask on, yeah. which is a lot a lot better than I was expecting, then with the yeah, mask off, that, yeah. it kind of yeah it builds the character quite well, like given what happens in the movie, like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just... Tiptoe around that one. Well, I mean, there was, there was, was there another thing you wanted to kind I, of tiptoe around? It was the... Uh, the ending pissed me off, and this is kind of a, a bigger point that I feel Marvel ruined Star Wars, which is weird, because as far as I'm aware, in terms of money, Star Wars saved Marvel in terms of the whole Disney crossover thing, but the original movie... Now, I never cared for New Hope, but the reason that it works so well, and along with the Joseph Campbell thing, is because it's a self-contained story. If they'd made no sequels, that story is complete. That would still be a classic movie if they just made the one Star Wars yeah, and never it, any Yeah, because they others. beat the bad guys, they blow up the Death Star, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. This one was built from the ground up with a franchise in mind, and it, it reminded me a lot of sort of Phase 2 Marvel movies where everything... Aside from... Okay, I'll get the ending in a second. Aside from that, though, there were so many very pointedly unanswered questions that really irritated me. I mean, I mean, that was a problem with this movie. It's hard to judge it as a self-contained thing yeah. because they're referencing stuff that they're only going to explain in exactly. future movies or they're referencing things that happened between Return of the Jedi and now, which, which the maybe in, they'll think, go back yeah. to or... No, no, screw the comics. Forget it. Just well, no, these but the, movies. The comics are licensed. Disney, Mar- Marvel wrote them. Yeah. Disney released them. They're canon. Uh, okay, but for a general audience yeah. who's going to see this, you, you only have the movies to go by. Is that mm. fair? I, yeah, no, yeah, fair. Um, yeah, because I'll go into Marvel movies. I don't read comic books, okay? I don't know anything about the comic book continuity, so I don't appreciate all these Easter eggs in Marvel movies the way other nerds, uh, other people do. Um, but that's so what this like movie this, was full of. And that's yeah. The, I mean, that annoyed me. The fan service stuff wasn't as intrusive as it could have been it's still irritated me like for example when they're on the Falcon and the chess game starts up like, and it dwells for a good 30 I, I seconds I like that that was fine no, it didn't even there wasn't too much of it there, there was, was just it, enough man. for it to be annoying but it wasn't too much to be in a complete to ruin it. yeah and then the ending Ugh. I went into this expecting as a joke in my head the exact ending we got I thought no way they can't actually pull that shit I well, still on the whole really enjoy this movie because I, I never care about Star Wars and this is probably my favourite one I've seen of the seven. Also, months, all that so. hoo-ha about Skellig Michael being used, I think it was worth it. It comes across yeah. really well in the movie. You know, oh, yeah, it, it looks good and it, it is kind of impressive looking at it knowing there's no CGI there aside from the spaceships. Like, it, that is all just the actual location. But I knew this would happen. As soon as they get a location in Ireland, it's suddenly the tourist board. It goes mental. Like, I've been seeing targeted ads on Facebook for the last three weeks for yeah. me. No, all but about visiting, visiting it Kerry. works because uh, I, I now want to visit it. I'm like... Yeah, so, Shite, the, so does the everyone else in the world now. It's on screen for it looks very. So does everyone else in the world now, though. Where it's, I could have just visited it last year. I've lived in Ireland all my life. I had plenty of time to visit it. Now every dork from around the world is going to want to come and visit. Shit. Eh, I don't care about seeing it that much. It looks fine. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, no. But, um, I on the whole, this was really solid, and mm-hmm. I could kind of. I want to see it again, which really surprises me. Yeah, like, and it, it'll be. I I would definitely rank it up there with. I I, I think people say that. The two originals, two of the originals yeah. are the strongest movies by far. I think this is up there with them. You know, I, th- I think it was conscious enough that, okay, it has lots of these self-aware references. But at the same time, I think because Star Wars has become such a thing, they knew, you know, what to avoid and what would work. And they have 
J.J. Abrams on the one hand and Kathleen Kennedy on mm-hmm. the other and y- y- Disney, all, all these different people with different inputs. So they came to a good, you know, compromise that was pretty solid, whereas George Lucas was an author who had all the control yeah. and he his brain is works in a very strange way. So he's now handed it over. It still felt very designed very by committee, but it didn't... That didn't work against it, I suppose. Like, I think Age of Ultron had a similar problem in that Whedon is an auteur, but it was still designed by Disney Committee, and I think the Disney Committee kind of overrode it, overrode it a bit, whereas this one didn't. I did have one niggling concern overall with Abrams' direction, and that was that there's sort of a clunkiness to the original trilogy, which was then, I think, unintentionally made worse than the prequels, that feels distinctly Star Wars. Like, it's, it doesn't have to, it's never really that dynamically shot or fluid, whereas this one was incredibly dynamic and fluid and it looked amazing some of those dog fights were incredible looking but that didn't feel star wars to me like that felt too clean and modern and it's slick and nice and it, it i don't know it just felt a little there was a tension there between this looking sounding like a star wars movie but just not really feeling like a star wars. it felt too fluid it didn't feel clunky enough even with the weird kind of old-fashioned wipes and stuff i don't know i just well you know there were emotional beats where they definitely got the vibe right mm-hmm. vibe for star wars uh, everyone's excited about it I'm glad that that all that hype sort of paid off because it is pretty good, you yeah. know. Not perfect by any means. I still think if I could request one George Lucas esque uh, re-release edit, remove C three PO from the movie. I always hated Anthony Daniels. But he's kind of annoying in this, yeah, because he's, he's barely in it. But he's only there so they can go. Here's another character you know from the old ones. But because his first appearance is during the Han and Leia reunion, which is a really good shot of them just looking at each other, yeah. and it's all through looks and emotion. And then he just bursts in and is Anthony Daniels Han Solo, and it's just like <laughs> that was that was kind of funny, but it was you know, no. yeah, he's always been quite bitchy and annoying I though. Hated him. I always found him annoying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was... Um, he has a new arm akin to an Albu new hat. Like, that, that is his entire character arc for the previous trilogy. Yeah. This one is just, he has a new arm. Red How exciting. Just... Please go away. <laughs> uh, no, but it's... Um, on the whole, it's pretty well designed. I, th- I think, you yeah, know, anything that could have done with... Yeah, I think Red Letter Media had an idea like that. If, if there could have been a line where somebody goes up to Leia and says... Um, General, uh, Jar Jar Binks' grave has been desecrated. And it's like, who's Jar Jar Binks? He was a general and senator. He made a lot of enemies. Like, go have it cleaned again. <laughs> and it just walks off. And it, if they just had that, that could have been Abrams saying, yes, Jar Jar Binks is dead. We're not doing that anymore. Well, no, there was a few kind of quite knowing um, we're not, the prequels didn't happen sort of moments. I think the, the distinct lack of anyone mentioning the word Metachlorian, despite talking about the Force not lost one of them. The other one was the particular planet that Starkiller base targets. I don't know that it's Coruscant. It's never mentioned by name, but it looks like it Coruscant. It looks like Coruscant, yeah. And it felt like them going, remember those Senate meetings everyone hated for the last three movies? Well, they're yeah. not happening anymore. Actually, yeah, but no, the entire Senate for the entire galaxy is destroyed then. The, what's the implications for the government on that? I think but George Lucas okay, would be that interested. That is the one big... Well, I, I, I kind of like the Senate stuff in the prequels. Anyway, but the, that's the one, I think, big storytelling mess up they have is that there doesn't need to still be a resistance, surely. The end of Jedi is that they destroy the figurehead of the They're Empire. They're resisting ISIS. I mean, First no, Order. No, but, yeah, but, yeah, but the First Order shouldn't exist. Like, there is a Republic, and yet there's still a resistance. And like, the First Order are seemingly this sort of... They're resistance now, you know? <laughs> so, no, I know, but if there is a Republic, then... Because it doesn't seem to imply that the Republic and the resistance are necessarily the same thing. Like, the Republic seems mm-hmm. to be... It feels like Leia never stopped being at war. You know, like, the war ended in Jedi, but it feels like she never stopped that war. Like, she kept going with it. And the First Order by chance I'd imagine arose up because whoever this Snoke fellow is unless he because he has to be someone important because he, he can't just have this weird you different Palpatine show up and just go I'm your leader now I reckon he's Palpatine's master or something yeah, and he's like immortal yeah, yeah. Um, do you see Do you see what we mean about it's hard to judge on its own because mm. it's referencing stuff that happened before and is going to happen after it's and definitely it's like a problem it's, you know it's, I mean, that, that, is, that is a flaw with it but 
on the whole, it's still pretty good storytelling, and I think I knew this was going to make all of the money, so I just, what I wanted it, it was to be, and maybe it's because of Red Letter Media's work looking at the prequels, it's just, I just wanted it to be a victory for good storytelling, that they, they'd learned the mistake, learned the lesson from the prequels, and they were going to have solid screenwriting now, and I think on the whole they have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I would recommend it. Um, I, I'm just surprised I liked it as much. Uh, yeah. I kind of want to cut a Red Letter ever now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, the Claymore thing actually did work it, out better. Yeah, the the, there was actually a good use. Despite to it, all so. the jokes when it first came up, that actually did look pretty cool. Yep. So and also the scenes of him when he lost his shit and was like tear a room up with it, like that was great. Anything else? Yeah, it was just like uh, great voice acting, great great work across the board, really. Mm. So, yeah, no, see Star Wars as if you weren't you know already planning to or haven't already. And if you haven't seen it yet and want to know where the Daniel Craig cameo is, he is the stormtrooper that gets Jedi mind tricked. And it is definitely his voice and even stance. If, as, like I have, you've watched Bond movies too many times, I can recognize a man's goddamn stance. I'm, I'm glad. So he's actually in the Stormtrooper outfit. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely him. Great. Too, yeah. And I, I really do like how they've brought the Force back as the mysterious presence it is. It's not midichlorians. Because when it's just the Force, the idea is like anyone could become a Jedi if you focus hard enough. Midichlorians is eugenicist. So. Neatly sort of sidesteps then having to explain it so that it's sort of a big, weird, all-purpose plot hole insulation which it was in this movie very much so. a force did it yeah yeah no so that's great um really happy with star wars force awakens yep so i think that'll do it for us um thank you for listening uh have a merry christmas and a very happy new year indeed and we'll be here at the film Ireland podcast to talk about what i hope is another good year of filmmaking because there have been some great films this year now it appears the basement is caving in so with that we wish you merry christmas and happy new year Where are you? Oh, there you are. Well, if you come over here, you'll find a wonderful surprise. You'll have to plug into the central computer to hear what it is. That's right. No, it's not a phase letter. It's your Christmas present. <laughs>